People don't really think through that process, right? They just think cows are bad, period. They don't see the 80% of its life, 90% of its life that's on grassland that would otherwise be used for different purposes, which usually are more intensive from a greenhouse gas perspective, you know, more harmful from a biodiversity perspective. This episode of All Land is Beautiful stems off the conversation I had with Palayo Alvarez in the previous episode. So while it's not necessary, I would recommend giving that one a listen first. This episode leans more in the direction of agriculture, and I'm hoping that if you've listened to any other episodes, you're beginning to see that the line becomes a bit blurry as to where conservation and habitat management stops and agriculture begins. And I intend to have this podcast represent that as well. It's indicative of where I live and work in California's Central Valley and Sierra Nevada foothills, but also represents really any place in the world where humans and quote-unquote wild places interface. I want to stress that I'm not advocating that ranching and farming should exist anywhere and everywhere and always has a benefit. In fact, in some situations, it's completely degradative. But as you'll hear me say over and over again, it's just a lot more nuanced than I think the majority of people understand. Ranches and farms do so much more than just grow food. And while providing wildlife habitat is one layer of the onion, there's this whole dynamic of carbon sequestration that's even harder to comprehend and get excited about because we simply can't see it. So on this episode, I sat down with Molly Taylor of PT Ranch out in Ione, California, which is located just an hour southeast of Sacramento and Amador County. After reflecting on the last episode, I wanted to get more into the weeds on the carbon farm plans I spoke about with Palayo and talk with one of the only people I knew personally who had really gone all in on this carbon farming thing. A special shout out to my former coworker and friend Carly for making the initial connection. We talk about the moment the decision was made to take a regenerative approach to managing PT Ranch and focus on carbon, Molly's somewhat indirect and unanticipated path into managing a ranch, the process of writing a carbon farm plan and the on the ground practices that have been implemented. Note that our conversation around fencing probably deserves its own entire episode and touch on ranch diversification and how PT Ranch remains a viable enterprise. It was joy getting to chat with Molly. There's a link to PT Ranch's website in the show notes. And if you ever have an opportunity to check out the ranch and its offerings, I highly recommend it. Podcast is the coming from the perspective of, of me, a again, a, a sort of an outsider moving to Sacramento, sort of becoming an insider in getting a view into this kind of this underworld could be a better word for that but uh but this just sort of all of these things going on that to the naked eye to the person who's not in this world would, drive by yeah it's yeah. it's drive by country exactly mm-hmm. and, and i and i even think i mentioned it in another pod in another episode where it's yeah it's drive by it's flyover country uh there's just not a whole lot going on it's just it's just grass and cows mm-hmm. and row crops and it's not a whole, that's the stuff I have to uh, drive through on my way to Yosemite Valley to get mm-hmm. my real nature experience. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you don't have to do that. If, right, you just need to look a little closer, dig a little deeper, mm-hmm. and there's some really cool stuff going on. So, uh, right, so with this, it's, it's talking to biologists, it's talking to conservationists, it's talking to ranchers and farmers, and really just anyone who is connected to the land 
because the land is the common denominator Mm -hmm. amongst all of us. And uh, even if we're just driving on it, we've still got our wheels Mm -hmm. on on the ground. Yeah. So these, these kind of first few episodes, the focus is really on this, this overlooked area of our state, which that's my personal perspective. Again, I think people who are living in it, who are working in it would argue it's one of the most diverse and productive parts of our state of our of our whole country uh, but again if you don't if you don't know that you don't know that i'm you know perf- i think perfect case uh rancho cordova california mm-hmm. it's just grasslands mm-hmm. flat Folsom. Folsom, right what a great place to build houses <laughs> we don't have to deal with any trees we just got to grade the ground a little bit and boom but uh when we start thinking about um, I mean, we'll, right, we'll get into it, you know, carbon sequestration, we talk about habitat, wildlife habitat. I think particularly in those areas, you're talking about like burrowing owl, which uh, is no, has not been seen to breed within Sacramento County for, I mean, for a long time, but, but was just 20, a couple decades ago. Um, loggerhead shrikes are, are another great one. Um, and then, of course, just native grassland plant species and other birds that are yeah we're kind of tearing down their home so this this whole in doing this whole podcast i'm still kind of you know finding the the exact format and the order we ask these questions but that there's sort of your primer and so i'm curious before we even we really get into anything i'm curious what is your view of conservation i think both in the context of of where we are Central Valley, Sierra Nevada foothills, as well as kind of your world and and what you're doing. Mm -hmm. What does it mean to you? Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's critical given the state we live in. I mean, like you mentioned, everything is the the land is is very highly valued for development. People want to live in California, even though people are leaving California, they still want to live here. They still want to build a house. They still want to send their kids to school. So the land is very valuable. And sometimes, especially I think when it comes to cattle ranching, you're not generating the type of profits that you could necessarily maintain a ranch in a family for multiple generations. So I do think conservation is a critical element of keeping working lands working. I think the type of conservation that I want to see continue to happen is the type that maintains some type of management focused approach. Because I think we lose a lot when we just take it into easement and then take off sort of management period and then make it more of like a park and use it exclusively for recreation. Um, I think recreation is super important, but I think we sort of miss out on a lot when we're not talking about how do we maintain, if it's a grassland, how do we maintain the grassland? And often, you know, when we're talking about grasslands, that includes grazing. Sure. Um, you know, uh, my I think I should add first that I, uh, this is this episode is I identified as this is the follow up to the to the conversation with with Palio mm-hmm. from Audubon, California, because I think it's a great it's a, such an obvious connection because we really talked very superficially about some of the stuff we're going to dive in today. And the reason I'm excited to talk with you is I, I do want to kind of get more into the weeds and the practicality mm-hmm. of some of these things. Um, and with that said, into just sort of. Uh, support your your opinion there he I, there was a great term and I hadn't I hadn't heard it before but it, he called it uh, fortress conservation <laughs> which was 
right? Let's, you know, we can, uh, you know, uh, metaphorically build a wall around it with a mm-hmm. conservation easement by mm-hmm. saying you can't do anything on it. But when we talk about, when we look at the landscape we're on, altered, mm-hmm. humans have Im- impacted it, we've kind of not done a great job in a lot of ways. The only way it gets better is, to your point, is, is it needs to be, there needs to be some level of management, mm-hmm. whether, whether that's cattle grazing, whether that's, uh, you know, cattle grazing combined with, uh, you know, well management exclusion from sensitive areas, mm-hmm. right, like a riparian area. And then, and we'll get in, and I want to get into other practices mm-hmm. when looking up from both a, from both a farming, ranching and habitat management, as far as, you know, yeah, compost applications and, and, uh, hedgerows and mm-hmm. uh, native, you know, perennial grasses and all, you know, all, all of this fun stuff. Yeah. Um, so then let's back up one step and I'd love if you could actually introduce yourself because mm-hmm. we haven't done that yet yeah, and yeah. what do you do and where are yeah. we yeah we're in i own um, my name is molly and we're on my family's ranch which is called pt ranch um, we manage a diversified livestock operation so we raise poultry swine and a couple different ruminants so sheep and cattle here um, we really only started that about five years ago historically it was just a cattle ranch um, we own 500 acres, but it was managed along with the, the contiguous 10,000. So it was just a smaller, leased element of a much larger operation, um, which was a historic Mexican land grant. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Um, and, and I apologize if I did. Um, and did you identify what your role is here? Mm, um, I'm the manager. Cool. <laughs> so the, the buck and and starts and ends with you. Sometimes. <laughs> um, well, cool. So then... Uh, carrying on from there, can you give me, um, you, you already mentioned this used to be a part of, uh, the, of a larger Mexican land grant. Um, but can you give me a little bit more history about, about PT ranch and mm-hmm. how, how your family came to it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So my great grandfather leased the, the land grant, um, which is called the Arroyo Seco. And then in the fifties, he sort of nudged his son, my grandpa and said, Hey, there's like a really sweet little, 500 acre cutout next to this lease you should buy it um and in the 50s my grandpa my grandpa went ahead and did that um and he used it primarily because they were living in oregon so they'd fly down he was a pilot he'd fly my my mom and her siblings down and there was used to be a little airstrip here they'd land on a little plane and um come mostly for like horseback riding hunting sort of like gentleman sports um (laughs) but um, there's actually a great story of when he came to, to, to buy the ranch. He came, there's a historic house right behind us that was like the headquarters. And he, he apparently he went in to sort of like meet the, the then owner. And I guess that that owner was embroiled in some type of affair and was like being hunted by <laughs> the husband of the guy he was sleeping with. So he was like, had a shotgun, like threw the keys at my grandpa and was like, it's yours. I got to get out of here and like oh hit gosh. the road. And my grandpa had it ever since. Um, but yeah, it wasn't until about, I'd say six years ago, my mom really actually, she went to a workshop at Tomcat ranch. I don't know if you're familiar with Tomcat. Oh, I have been. I've been there. Nice. Yeah. So she went to a, a workshop there and, um, she had been also sort of lightly researching like regenerative agriculture, didn't know much about it. And 
became sort of fascinated by like the climate nexus and decided that we were going to do that here. Mm-hmm. Um, I was actually living in New York City and I get this call that she's like raising chickens and I was like, what the heck is going on? So I, um, I ended up coming back to like help out for six months. It was going to be a very temporary situation and it ended up extending until today. But um, we've learned more than I could have ever imagined about how di- you know, how rewarding, but also how difficult this work can be. Ah, yeah, sure. Um, and so just to um, maybe close the gap there. So you said, so your grandfather purchased it. And then, mm-hmm. um, so between him purchasing it and your mom more recently deciding to get mm-hmm. very involved, what uh, was it just being, uh, was it incorporated as part of another lease or yeah, what was happening in that, mm-hmm. in that period? Yeah, so um, it was, while my grand, when my grandpa owned it, it was leased to a, a, a gentleman named Jack Sparrick, who's a who's a prominent rancher in the area. Mm-hmm. Um, and right around the time that I came back, we sort of decided that we wanted to take the management back, mm-hmm. and so um, eventually ended his lease to to manage it all of ourselves. Got it. Yeah. Cool. Well, that's a very fun history. <laughs> Though I, that's not the first time I've heard some. <laughs> Some col- some colorfulness thrown into yeah. <laughs> to a family's involvement. I think especially out in um, this neck of the woods. So that's yeah. awesome. Um, so then, for just a little more, well, just a little bit more about you and, and kind of and background here. Well, so I, so you mentioned you had come from New York. So it sounds like you probably uh, you had not envisioned uh, a life in, in yeah, ranching and farming not. in any way. Yeah, yeah. I was studying urban planning, which actually lends itself more than you'd think to agriculture I think yeah, I yeah. yeah it's like systems thinking um you know I I think in some way it's really great to not grow up in agriculture and to kind of come in with all of your naivete mm-hmm. and to sort of like break down those um assumptions that you carry from being a basically a consumer of agricultural goods right that's sure. what we are when we don't participate in ag itself um and I was just that was probably the most fascinating part of the first few years, just realizing how little I knew. Mm-hmm. And I thought I knew, like, you think you know a lot. Sure. People just we kind of do. assume that about We're themselves. We're all smart. <laughs> and I really did not know anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I, it was a classic example would be like, we'd throw these annual holiday parties and our, some of our ranching neighbors would come. And I remember the first, like, couple of years that I was back, I'd be like, yeah, you know, cows are like... <laughs> cows are really bad and like it was it's just so funny thinking back to that because a i would never approach someone that way today Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. also like bless their souls for just dealing with me like a city slicker coming like you know like what the heck but um yeah i think i think getting to understand the complexities of the beef supply chain understanding the role that rangelands play in carbon sequestration um and when, you know this point of conservation i mean like i have learned so much about what it takes to keep rangelands from being developed right like beyond an easement development is the number one economic value right for a piece of rangeland so without some type of economic activity occurring on that land it's going to go fallow and eventually be developed, which people don't people don't really think through that process, right? They just think cows are bad, 
period and they don't they don't they don't see the 80 percent of its life 90 percent of its life that's on grassland that would otherwise be used for different purposes which usually are more intensive from a greenhouse gas perspective you know more harmful from a biodiversity perspective um so once that all clicked in my brain Mm -hmm. i became sort of like really motivated to work with ranchers because there there's definitely there's tons of areas in which we can improve and that excites me sure um but there's just so much to learn about that life cycle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think first off, you, you mentioned you well, you appreciate people when you first came out, sort of dealing with your the, the naive Molly. I, I think I, just I, just a personal note. I think I can having worked in land trusts myself and uh, being a, a man, having managed grazing leases in the context of of managing preserves. Um, I have interacted with a number of, of ranchers at this point too, and I'm, I'm a San Diego boy. Uh, I do my best to, uh, put on, you know, figuratively throw on my boots and my hat and, you know, not say anything stupid amongst Mm -hmm. them. But I think, uh, but to that point, I, I, coming back to this whole, this whole aspect where the, the land is the common denominator and when we're respectful of one another and, we just were communicating clearly and just not BSing one another or trying to be someone we're not. I mean, I've, I have not had a bad interaction with a rancher, mm-hmm. uh, e- even when it's a conversation about something that's negatively, you know, it's going to make their, their lives harder. Mm-hmm. And I can even say, in fact, in one instance, I, someone was really screwed over. Mm-hmm. Um, they basically were losing their unbeknownst to either of us they were losing their ground for for a whole winter pretty much right and i got hung up on mm-hmm. within five minutes later that that rancher called me back and said hey I, you know what i just need to apologize for <laughs> for doing that because i didn't want to say something to you that i was going to regret right. i was like I've, I've i can't say i've ever had an interaction with with something like that so i think yeah. that speaks to yeah, just people in that world mm-hmm. um Generally, Um, and so then you were. I think you were already kind of uh, getting into it a little bit. Uh, My my next question here was was uh, was there kind of a specific moment, uh, event, person, or experience that that brought your your interest into this sort of more regenerative agricultural dynamic that you have going here? Um, I mean, it sounds like it would it would have been happened very recently because mm-hmm. you haven't been involved here long. But I don't, do you want to do you want to expand anymore? Can mm-hmm. you think of yeah? Is there anything to add there? Yeah, I mean, before I moved here, I was working in nonprofits in New York City, which was really eye opening, but also really challenging because a lot of the things that we were doing had these sort of unintended negative consequences. Sometimes we were dealing with really complicated community dynamics, like you know, gentrification, things like that, mm-hmm. that, you know, our arts nonprofit would att- would be sort of in the midst of struggling to address with things like murals and, and things mm-hmm. that like, on one hand had like a, had many benefits, but on the other hand, when we sat back, we're like, are we just actually making gentrification worse? Like, mm-hmm. So that was the kind of constant headspace I was in was like really sort of like, in some ways really overthinking everything I did because it was it had all all of these very complex downstream effects. And I actually think that that relates to agriculture, but I've found that 
in some ways, because we're dealing with animals mostly, it's a little less complicated. But there is still that that nuance of how you implement a grazing plan has many effects, right? And you can do a bad job. Like sure. you really can. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you could have the best of intentions and you can do a really bad job. So being constantly humbled by that cycle of work and observation, work to be better, more mm-hmm. observation, and then to fail a number of times, which has definitely happened. Sure. Yeah. But which, right... Uh, failure is a learning opportunity, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, you got to throw a positive spin on it. Right. <laughs> uh, well, great. Well, so then I would love to uh, dive dive a little bit more into to the operation here. Mm-hmm. So the previous, uh, and again, the previous episode with Palayo, we, we touched on his work in, in carbon farm planning, mm-hmm. which has then transitioned into more bird-focused. But mm-hmm. it really is... It, it's the same it's kind of it's really the same practices mm-hmm. being implemented just through a different lens carbon mm-hmm. versus birds or whatever else someone mm-hmm. someone might be wanting to manage their specific land for but what i think what so what we're ultimately coming down to is this yeah, it's more of an i don't want to say it's an evolving perspective because what what's being implemented is not necessarily like new technology new practices like these mm-hmm. are things that are coming from indigenous you know, in, cultures indigenous <laughs> cultures and you know from hundreds of years of agricultural yeah. practices in some cases mm-hmm. right so but what it is is i think it's right it's looking at it with more of a, again whether maybe it's a lens of carbon or, or birds mm-hmm. it's adding western science on top of it mm-hmm. what i ultimately look at how i ultimately look at it in what excites me about it is that it's really just it's trying to be really intentional behind what you're doing again i'll say we're throwing in the context of of doing things for carbon doing things for plant diversity doing things for wildlife mm-hmm. um and this is my assumption but and we'll talk about it more but it's just really trying to get the most bang for your buck in mm-hmm. in every way possible on mm-hmm. on a piece of land uh and in, in, again, I think I mentioned in the previous episode, it's it's like a kitchen sink approach mm-hmm. to like, how many things can we do to have a positive benefit mm-hmm. on this land? And so I think one last thing to notice there is uh, so to come back, we, we right, we've, we've altered our landscape, the, right? This landscape, maybe not uh, where we are at PT, not so heavily, but this is gold country. So things... Ground was turned over. Things were certainly, you know, lots of trees were cut down. The land was worked hard. We're not going to get it back to what it was, but we can do better. And that's what I love about what you guys are trying to do here. So maybe if you can start, um, what can we do in this area um, on marginal soils in this de- in the degraded landscape, start to just sort of give me an introduction to this, to some of the things that you guys are are doing to to, mm-hmm. to be better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think in our context, which is basically rangeland and some irrigated pasture, we have a little bit of far- what we call farmland, but it's really just pasture. We've stopped tilling, which is one of the interventions you can make. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think to back up a little bit, I do think that there there are interventions you can make at any scale. Actually, since starting. Uh, the you know helping to manage the operation here i've actually branched out into technical assistance and work for nonprofits, sort of helping to scale this in other contexts Mm -hmm. um and 
I definitely think there's something you can do at every scale. Now, that being said, I do think there are some elements of the industrial models that aren't, they're called farming, but mm-hmm. really there's, it has nothing to do with soil at a certain point. Like, sure. especially with confined animal feeding operations, you're really, it's really an, it's, it's kind of an entirely different beast. Um, I'm not saying that those people don't have the best of intentions for the animals they care for, sure. but it has so little to do with the soil and, you know, at the point of that, that they operate on, right. They're getting feed from another landscape, mm-hmm. importing it and feeding it to the animals there. But I think at our scale in which the, the feed is grown where it's fed pr- mm-hmm. for the most part, you know, there's lots we can do in terms of reducing our tillage. Um, we eliminate all, all like spray of, of herbicides and pesticides. We integrated different types of livestock into our rotation. So added some poultry, diversified the ruminants. So we added sheep, um, actually started moving them according to a grazing plan. And then also like focus on some perennialization, not just of grasses th- through grazing management but also like actually intentionally establishing trees and shrubs Mm -hmm. to increase carbon sequestration and then also the compost (laughs) yeah 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 yeah. well and so then and i kind of want to dive a little further into all of those but so let's come so you you do have a carbon farm plan Mm -hmm. for your property Mm -hmm. um and we talked about on the uh, the one in having listened through my my last episode the i i tried to get into the details a little Mm -hmm. bit more and i i I, we didn't get in as deep as I, as I would have liked to. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, so listeners of the previous context of the previous episode will know that a carbon farm plan is, is sort of it's a kitchen sink management plan of all the things we can do to increase the carbon storage capacity of a property. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to uh, pull out stress that wasn't to um, wasn't to like maximize or, you know, pro- you know, the how much can we shove in yeah. but it's to optimize yeah. through different practices yeah and so okay so you guys so um i think you had actually so you'd mentioned your mom had gone to that regenerative mm-hmm. uh grazing or management mm-hmm. training is was that sort of the nexus for we're gonna do a carbon farm plan and start doing these things yeah i think she maybe had heard about it through that and like when i came from new york city obviously i was completely ill-equipped to do anything like mm-hmm. nothing i could do nothing but now you're <laughs> it, a pro <laughs> now i'm a total pro um the one thing i could do though at that point was write a plan mm. i came from that background so i was like okay what am i actually going to do to like start to educate myself and so i actually harassed palio for like six months <laughs> he didn't even know who i was at that point i would just like every couple of weeks call him up and be like so like can we get a carbon farm plan going? Like, what's what's what are we waiting on? And finally, he was like, you know what? I think you should just write it yourself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because they, you know, they had limited resources. They were writing a lot of plans. Their planners were strapped. So I ended up getting some type of training from the Carbon Cycle Institute mm. and then just writing it myself with their guidance. Sure. Um, yeah. So we inventoried, you know, the potential sequestration on the property, which basically looks at all of the potential in interventions you can make from grazing management to compost application to hedgerow establishment etc etc and then looking at your particular property right like where is that appropriate where is it not appropriate you know what kind of infrastructure would you need to invest in order to make that happen and you know it kind of it kind of lays it out for you Mm -hmm. it also to be completely honest, is also sort of a lever with which to open a door to get funding to do mm-hmm. that stuff. Yep. Because it, it does identify you as someone who's put thought into it. Mm-hmm. 
it's, it shows a little shows, bit of... It's an initial investment, right? Yeah, it also shows, a, a, I think, a commitment to like the ethos of the work. Sure. <laughs> so um, we did then subsequently get some a number of different grants to do the work, including from CDFA, the Healthy Souls Program. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, so I'd say the first couple of years was really like looking at the plan and then trying to find sort of the lowest hanging fruit within the plan because it can be really overwhelming when you look at it all. I mean, it could take someone in multiple li- lifetimes to, to sure. do all of the work and also to like do it well. There's many ways to do it poorly. And I did a number of those ways as well. <laughs> um, so like I mentioned, we started with reducing our tillage and spreading compost, um, and then really with the grazing management and later with some perennialization. Cool. Very yeah. um, I can say uh, to add, first and foremost, in regards to writing plans, I'd say arguably that's the best way. When you've never done one, that's the best time to do one because you're going to learn a lot because mm-hmm. you got to go through every single thing. Right. So, because again, having a... I've, I've, I've been there certainly. So that's great. So let's dive in now to those actually, you've, we've, you've already, you've mentioned the names already, um, but I want to dive in as deep as you would like to. So mm-hmm. let's start off with prescribed grazing paddock mm-hmm. management. Um, you talked about this used to be, uh, it was historically just grazed by cattle. Mm-hmm. You guys have incorporated a number of other mm-hmm. species of uh, mm-hmm. grazing ruminants mm-hmm. into into it. So let's talk about uh, multi-species grazing as well as management movement mm-hmm. of them. And mm-hmm. what, 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 what are you thinking? What's going into that? Yeah. So we started by sort of actually just moving animals a little mm-hmm. bit more frequently. Um, we also, carbon a carbon farm plan is one thing, but then actually having a grazing management plan is can be a little bit more specific because you could sort of understand at a bird's eye view what would need to happen, but then when it comes to actually moving your animals, you, you need a much more specific grazing plan with actual like animal units, days, you know, so we started to get into that level of planning. And if I could, what's an animal unit? Oh my God, <laughs> the test. I actually forget what the pound equivalent is, but uh-huh. essentially you're trying to you're trying to correlate the the de- the the demand that the cow or the sheep has mm-hmm. for feed mm-hmm. with the amount of feed you're willing to remove from the acre. So we inventoried what we we had in terms of livestock, and then we attempted to like meet those goals mm-hmm. through movement and the implementation of different fencing strategies, basically infrastructure development. And I hate to interject one more time, but fencing does not sound interesting, <laughs> but it can take yeah it can be one of the most challenging parts of, of trying to do that. Yeah. And so I'm just uh, I'm assuming is a lot of electric fence mm-hmm. utilization with a combination of fixed fences. Yes. Yeah. So we we sort of change some of our existing permanent fence to add sheep wire because obviously sheep can walk right through a cow fence um so we sort of reinforced our a lot of our existing fence with sheep wire um we bought a lot of electric um netting Mm -hmm. to put sheep in certain areas where they hadn't been prior we also did buy some poly wire which is just electric strings to move cattle from time to time that way I'd say on our scale, that works. We have 500 acres. We can play with that type of infrastructure. When you get much larger, 
it, you just need to adapt the technology to the scale, right? So I don't, you, you maybe you're following like the virtual fencing movement. There's lots of different interventions yeah. at this point, you know, that are, that all depend on your context, right? Like what's sure. your topography? What scale are you working at? A virtual fence would not make sense on our property with the amount of infrastructure we have developed. But yeah, we definitely invested in a lot of electric fencing. Got it. Yeah. Right and, so, uh, and so, if, yeah, as far as the, the virtual fencing, right? So that's collars on, is basically yeah tracking and giving little zaps if yeah first if, audio cues actually oh, okay. yeah got yeah. it yeah and again just again i guess for for listeners that that would be more applicable on on the scale of, of thousands tens of, acres of thousands yeah where yeah we're putting in a, a five mile cross fence to right. to to create a a pasture or a paddock it's, and we're really yeah we're really getting to the point with permanent fencing that you know the 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 cost of production on a ranch is not it's not keeping pace with the cost of infra- of infrastructure mm-hmm. right so like to go and build a fence is now so much more expensive than it used to be and actually i was listening to a different podcast about this the other day but like we all inherited these fences thinking of them as sort of permanent fixtures because mm-hmm. that had metal and wood but they all degrade over time and a lot of a lot of the fences on our property were built probably 100 years ago and maintained but not replaced systematically so now if you were to look at actually replacing all of our perimeter fence or whatever it would make no sense Mm -hmm. in the span of my previous in my previous position i think in the span of about four years i saw the price of a just a standard like five strand barbed wire fence go from from about five dollars a foot to like seven fifty eight dollars a foot, which I'm sure does that sound about right to you? Mm-hmm. I think it's even higher now. But well, and I would yeah. imagine it's just continued. Yeah. And then if you throw in other specs, you know, you yeah. throw in uh, hog wire onto it or something like yeah. that, you're up ten, eleven, oh, twelve dollars. Yeah. And then also, right, you, if it's not if it's a straight, nice straight flat fence, that's one thing. But now if you're throwing in curves and you got to put in anchor posts, right. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I've thought a lot about fencing yeah. over the last several years, even just on my end. And it's, well, it's so important. This is how you, you know, it's how you control movement of livestock and by proxy how you, you know, influence soil health. So, yeah. Um, so then, so then please, if you would speak more on, yeah. So let's get into why should we move animals to support soil health? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think the most simple explanation is that, like, when an, when a cow is grazing and, and cutting, you know, a, a blade of grass with its tongue, if it comes back too soon, that blade of grass will eventually lower its photosynthetic capacity, right? Because it was shocked by that initial, basically, wound, right, yeah. that the cow inflicted on the grass, and its first reaction to that to that first wound is to shoot sugars out of its roots, right? And to increase its carbon capture, right? And then to grow back, it's it's increasing its leaf matter and basically increasing its photovoltaic capacity with that green um, tissue, right? Yeah, That's m- like a solar panel. More green surface area right. to capture. Sun, um, yeah. But if the cow comes back and nips it a second time too quickly, instead of that root structure growing to be able to continue to, you know, take carbon from the air and, and store it in the soil, it's going to decrease over time. So that's sort of like the most basic backyard explanation of the photosynthetic 
process, but there's other elements too, like compaction, um, mm-hmm. water cycle um, considerations with, with grazing, um, timing, density, time of year. Like, is it really wet where you're grazing? Is it really rocky? How much litter is there currently, right? Like how much ground cover exists when you're grazing? Are you coming into a place that already has no cover, has very little grass growth to begin with? Or are you coming into something that maybe has been over-rested and has a lot of thatch, right? And actually needs higher density graze to bring that dead, decaying organic matter that's just sitting on the top and make it incorporate into the soil. So there's all these different contextual considerations and how you approach the the use of livestock in that context sure to maybe summarize that i think uh so if we if if any animal is is chomping on 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 any plant too often you're they're basically exhausting it into eventually death right Mm -hmm. i mean it's been especially and i mean if of course you can you're going to consider annual versus perennial species but either way Mm -hmm. it's yeah it's there you're overworking the plant and then you mentioned compaction as well and i would imagine with there i mean we're talking you know a thousand pound mm-hmm. cow with with ho- you know mm-hmm. with hard hooves stepping on mm-hmm. you know if they step on the ground too much i mean mm-hmm. that yeah it's basically out there with like a motorized mm-hmm. compactor and you're yeah. you're damaging what's underneath what's well, in the soil in certain applications it can actually aerate the soil but mm-hmm. in certain in certain contexts it can do the opposite where yeah. um especially if it's too wet mm-hmm. you end up because there's pores within the soil right that mm-hmm. hold basically like little pockets of oxygen that help with the carbon cycle but mm-hmm. when those pores get compressed there's a lack of oxygen in that profile that um actually decreases the carbon the potential of the carbon cycle to flow through the soil. So it's really contextual. And it's also funny because people have often assumed that sheep are better because they're lighter, mm. but actually it has to do with um, surface to, to body ratio. Mm-hmm. So a cow actually can be less, have less of a compaction effect of on compaction than a sheep because mm. sheep have these tiny surfaces by which sure. their entire body is pressing on where a cow, when you do the ratio to its weight, to its, the surface of its mm-hmm. hooves is actually lighter. Wow. Um, yeah. Uh, was that someone's like PhD study? There actually are papers on it that yeah. I have read, peer-reviewed well, papers. Yeah. That would have you. Yeah. That's that's really cool. Yeah. So what you're saying is it's easy. It's so easy. I wake up every morning. I look at the pastures and drink my coffee. No, it's yeah. it. It is a lot of. It is a lot of. It ha- brings a lot of joy. It brings a lot of goodness. But it it is it, it's just very challenging because not not just from like a if if you're just looking at it from a carbon lens like even that's challenging right like even like making these interventions effective is challenging but then trying to make money while doing that is <laughs> like whole other whole other yeah can of worms so. yeah which is why i want to be talking with you about this because yeah again yeah we can talk about it in theory but if it uh if at the end of the day the the quote unquote checkbook doesn't balance out what's yeah it's you can't do it let's move on to the next one compost applications why should we be applying compost (laughs) to to rangelands that's a great question i think primarily it's to add organic matter right there's also there's also some microbiotic effects of like the of what microbiology is coming in via the compost but Mm -hmm. really the primary 
effect is this organic this added organic matter that's basically increasing the water holding capacity and thereby increasing the duration of the photosynthetic cycle of of the grass so Mm -hmm. we're just increasing the capacity for for photosynthesis to take gaseous carbon and store it as solid carbon in the soil Mm -hmm. so um, there's lots of really cool articles out there um, about it especially within the california context coming out of like uc berkeley and Mm -hmm. and other places Um, and i think it's becoming one of the more popular practices for for carbon sequestration yeah, I think, and with that one, Eden mentioned it earlier, but that, that's coming from the Department of Food and Ag's Healthy Soils program, correct? Yeah, they, I mean, CDFA, I think, bases, so it's all comes back to this model called Comet Planner, which is mm-hmm. actually out of Colorado State University, but they, I don't know if CDFA is just taking the, the data that built the model in Colorado, or if it, they may have incorporated um, more localized data, like from UC Berkeley. There's some... Once you get really into the weeds on compost application, there's a lot of different schools of thought. But the studies in California were showing that a one-time heavier application had really positive effect, whereas CDFA likes you to go in and apply three times in a row mm-hmm. at, a, at a smaller rate. Got it. Yeah. Oh, interesting. I, I did have a little personal experience working through that as well. I, we had mm-hmm. gotten some compost applications on, a, on our property uh, out, out in East County, Sacramento, I'm curious then, what uh, what happens if we don't apply compost? Well, I also think there, it's really worth noting like the upstream or downstream ramifications of it because we have so much organic matter in our state that either goes to landfills or sits in areas that are highly prone to fire. So like we have these, we have this imbalance where we have organic matter going into landfills and creating methane. Mm-hmm super potent greenhouse gas or like woody biomass sitting next to a freeway or you know in some wildlife urban interface that's gonna eventually probably catch on fire given given the the state in the last last few years right so we have these 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 um organic streams right that could that are and and should be diverted into some other use which i think the highest and best use is is composting so it's both a reduction of emissions as well as an increase in sequestration which i think is really cool got it and i'm i'm just curious is would there be a way to do that on your to do that naturally on your property or i guess i'm saying i mean well I might answer my be answering my own question, but I guess I'm thinking you could certainly source compost created on your own operation. Yeah, you can. You could either create your own compost, or I mean, every time that you're laying down organic matter from a graze period, right? That that carbon rich grass that you haven't eaten that's staying there, or the manure, right? That's coming after the graze, like all of that is essentially when it's touching the soil composting. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's happening on like a, a micro level as well. Yeah. And then I'm curious because I, uh, I had sort of thought through this in, in my own personal context, as far as the, Oh, the, the, the dynamics of, of where exactly you are applying, uh, factoring in 
other, say, stream courses, creeks, mm-hmm. rivers, or other ecologically sensitive areas. Mm-hmm. Does I'm just curious. Does does that come into the? I'm assuming it's factored in as well. Mm-hmm. Maybe speak speak to that a little bit as far as how it's considered. Yeah, I mean, I think first of all, there's like so much rangeland that isn't near sensitive mm-hmm. like riparian habitats that could be negatively affected by it. I don't think there's, I think the risk would be like runoff, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, then that's what I'm, yeah. That's yeah, what I'm... but there's so, there's so much opportunity to just like set them back a little bit and not mm-hmm. run the risk of that, that I think generally people just start with the lowest hanging fruit, which Got is it. not near a riparian area. Got it. So we haven't yeah. even gotten to that point yet. Cool. Yeah. And so just, you know, I am pulling these, these items off of the, the information on your website so they are they are guaranteed it's a guarantee that you are doing them mm-hmm. um let's speak just broadly on uh cover crops range planting and no-till we, mm-hmm. we, we mentioned them but let's get a little more mm-hmm. G- give me a little bit more detail yeah so the range planting and all of this was done with the assistance of grants so that mm-hmm. was like we have funded some things out of pocket but like you really have to be pretty careful about how much you do out of pocket because there's not always an inherent return on that investment sure so like with with the with the range seeding we did that um with some western SARE funding and our cooperative extension advisor as part of a study of basically diversifying pastures with more legumes and yeah there's it was really successful project showed that there was increased protein content in the pastures the cows favored the areas that had been seeded mm-hmm. and then the no-till we basically inherited all of three, these three pasture farm fields that were tilled annually mm-hmm. and as a result are super compacted so you know it's a really steep curve when you remove the tillage because you're inheriting something that's already really degraded sure. um, so we get a lot of low succession plants that grow there even though we're seeding it to actually cut hay off of Mm. we still you know have a plethora of weeds because the the two main things that people do to get rid of weeds is tilling and spraying and we do neither of the two so i think we've been lucky that the hay market has been strong so people end up buying our hay anyways but Mm -hmm. it's definitely not what they're used to in terms of diversity and unfortunately weeds as well but from from my perspective like the weed is a plant as well (laughs) it's doing something and usually it's a in response to what had occurred there right so like the top rooted weeds that people see like yellow star thistle is actually growing there specifically because of the management causing compaction so yes it sucks it gets on your pants and Mm -hmm. sometimes cows and sheep won't eat it um at certain stages of of its life but we still have yet to till even though we're seeing these these weeds come because I just think it's going to take a really long time. Mm-hmm. It's just going to be a long process. So I think it's too early for us to say conclusively that like we would need to till in order to produce the quality of crop that we'd need to produce. I also eventually would like to not cut hay because cutting hay itself actually creates a lot of soil health issues. But sure. So that that's no-till. And then um, cover cropping, we... The, the fields had been planted to the same thing, you know, or, or the same rotation of things for years. So mm-hmm. like, um, and often things in isolation, right? Like one thing at a time or sure. two things at a time. And we just added a lot of diversity. So radish 
Sure. We threw radish into the mix to help break up the compaction. Um, we threw a bunch of different clovers and legumes, which is funny. Like when we are, even though our hay does have weeds, the people that buy it say that their animals eat it. Hmm. And that they really sometimes will favor it over other hays. And I think it's because of that diversity and there's there's a fair amount of protein in it, you know. So it's I I think it's funny when you when you kind of take the human lens off of something and then mm-hmm. like let the animal intuit what do, it needs. Do what and, it do yeah. what it needs, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well which right and I think speaks to and that speaks to both domesticated and and native, uh, you know, and and part of this podcast as well is to it's not to say that, well, I mean, it's about people doing better. It's about people trying to, to make, you know, to, to fix and undo, you know, a lot mm-hmm. of the damage we've done. But it's also to celebrate and to just sort of dive in into some of the the unsuspecting, not necessarily like victories for, mm-hmm. for wildlife, but some pretty surprising adaptations Mm -hmm. and so i think perfect you know this will be a reference to the to the first episode with jamie marty Mm -hmm. we talk about how uh, as far as pollinators go in the summertime yellow star thistle is one of the primary food sources for a number Mm -hmm. of of pollinate of native pollinators and god forbid if you go in and spray or till Mm -hmm. and completely get rid of that entire Mm -hmm. star yellow star population without replacing it exactly. with something that's going to Which gonna... we did. Okay. Which well... we 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 planted a lot of hedgerows and actually I I'd say probably like my favorite success story because the, the thing with carbon is it's really hard to visualize. It's like Well, it's underground. Yeah. So like, <laughs> okay, is there 10% more grass growing because of the added carbon? Like it just doesn't it doesn't have the same feel as like walking up to a hedgerow and seeing like thousands of native bees. I've never seen so many native bees. I don't even. I didn't even think I even knew what a native bee looked like. But mm-hmm. like, I walked up to one of our coyote bushes in the hedgerow, and it has these little white flowers. And it's it's the it, there's almost like more bees than bush. It, yeah. I mean, it was it was wild. And then in addition to things like coyote bush, we planted a lot of milkweed, and we have seen monarchs two years in a row for the first time in my lifetime. Wow! To the point where I was like are monarchs even supposed to be here <laughs> because yeah. like, I have oh. no memory of ever yeah. seeing a monarch and I'm 29 years old. So I hope that they are supposed to be here because now they are here. <laughs> yeah. Well, they used to be everywhere. Right. I mean, that's, and that's the, yeah, talk about plight of a, of a species, but yeah, I, and we're, we kind of jumped ahead to the next one, to the next point I had, but as far as talking about plantings, I mean, mm-hmm. the milkweed being right, the primary plant species for monarchs and a number of, of, of mm-hmm. others as well we're kind of getting to this place now where it, it we need to protect there there are certainly areas where it exists naturally mm-hmm. but then it's awesome you know you have these moments where again we're trying to optimize the benefits of mm-hmm. of a large piece of property mm-hmm. and yeah if you can throw in a couple milkweed plants mm-hmm. and help help some monarchs on their, mm-hmm. you know, on their migration, on their huge <laughs> migration. I mean, how great is that? So you, t- you discussed hedgerows a little bit, you know, and I, and I, I should, I wanted to mention too, I've, I've, you mentioned the coyote bush and seeing mm-hmm. the number of bees. I, I've experienced that myself. And mm-hmm. I think it's so awesome when you, you don't even notice it. Like if you From don't afar, notice it, yeah. And you don't notice it unless you stop and look at mm-hmm. it. And then you realize you, you almost think, is that plant moving? And it just realize it's like just it's all of the flowers yeah. being are being shaken by by bees. 
just one clarifying point. What what exactly is a hedgerow? I think mm-hmm. pe- maybe people could maybe uh, figure it out by the name, but yeah. just give me, yeah, yeah. Wh- what is it? What does it look like exactly, and in, in where is it incorporated on yeah. your, on your ranch? I think historically it has root in England, where they would cut farm fields up with these perennial plantings, mostly I think to help reduce erosion, right? Because they were basically tilling these hillsides, mm-hmm. and then in the event of a rain or wind, they needed to sort of break up that loose, exposed dirt with these hedges, mm-hmm. right? And um, in some places, the hedges like replaced fences because they're so thick. We do it along fence lines here. Um, they're not. They're also too young to be like as thick as these like hundred year old hedgerows in England. But sure. so who knows? Maybe at some point they could be used as a fence. It's a little bit more arid. It's much more arid here than in England. So I doubt we'd ever get that type of fence like hedge that that lives on the type of precipitation we have. But um, but yeah, we we do it around fences. When we can, we do it right on the external side of the fence so that we don't have to set up additional fence to protect sure. it from livestock. But in in some cases, it's it's you know in between fields and it, it has to be protected from livestock. Got it. And yeah. is this something that's getting irrigated? Not irrigated? Yeah, I mean, my understanding is that there's really um, I don't know where in California you could establish something without at least three years of irrigation. Um, Just to get it established. The idea is to have it. Oh, I think that that goes. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if you're trying to establish anything beyond mm-hmm. an an annual mm-hmm. plant species, it's going to need to be water. But the, yeah. is the idea to eventually have them be? The idea off? is that they eventually would be off, but I actually don't know how. I think more more and more as hedgerows sort of because they there were some studies I think done on some older hedgerows like in Yolo County that maybe don't have irrigation anymore, but they're like 20 or 30 years old. Mm-hmm. I think the newest wave of hedgerow plantings in the last like five, 10 years, I think they're finding that the, actually ir- it, the irrigation needs to last for longer. Got it. Yeah. Which I think is, well, that may, I think that's one of those things where it's a, I mean, it's a cost benefit analysis there, but if, but when we're talking about supporting. These pulp, are also very, like, they don't require that much water. Yeah. They're, well, they're usually drought resistant natives. They just need a, enough to survive. Sure. And I guess in the, my, I think my thought process there too, is that if there's already an irrigation line, not far off or, or you, you put one in there in the first place. Yeah. It just, yeah, it, it's not adding too much on top of, of, of what, what else you're doing. Mm-hmm. So in relation to that, then I, I know there's some riparian restoration areas on the ranch as well. Well, there's actually the need for riparian restoration. We have yet to really do much riparian restoration. That's actually an area that I think I really need some advice on because every year it changes, Mm -hmm. right? We have these, like last year, we had the torrential atmospheric river um, that produced a ton of erosion. And, you know, there are years where the river... Well, flood. This is like a this is a flood a floodplain. These mm-hmm. pastures down here, and when it we wanted to, I mean, the flooding is is beneficial for for the soil when it happens in that way when it comes above the riverbank and spreads out, slows down over the pastures, and then mm-hmm. um, sinks into the soil. But we're finding that like more and more, we're just getting huge amounts of erosion on the on the banks and losing a bunch of soil um, trees and. And other things so I, I did talk to a few people about it but I mean 
we're a relatively small strip of a very complex and long ecosystem. And I don't know how much effect we could have on our tiny strip Mm -hmm. when the velocity of the water, you know, is gaining from each property that it comes to before and after us. So, um, from what I understand, it would require a lot of actually like, um, excavation Hmm. and, um, actual mechanical work to like, put in boulder like significant oh, yeah, you um, need some yeah uh reinforcements yeah. before you were to do anything yeah and i could and i can speak to uh doing a tree planting uh, out at deer creek hills preserve um east county sack uh we did some and last year they several of them just got washed out yeah. because they they were in, in and near, around the the primary creek that goes through there and uh yeah, so yeah, it's one of those things that timing is everything. Well, and I don't, there's so much conflicting advice on riparian restoration mm-hmm. because, like, we have a lot of non native species in our riparian mm-hmm. ecosystem that, you know, are invasive, but they're also, like, growing along the riverbanks and helping to reduce erosion. So, sure. like, I've had the county contact me and say, we'll take, we'll spray all mm-hmm. of this stuff, which A, they're using you know, some type of, um, herbicide and then B I'm like, well then what's going to happen when the next flood comes and all of these trees and shrubs are dead. Yep. Like it's, it it feels like something I would need to really have a lot of time to think about and consider. Well, and I, and it's one of those things too where nothing's happening, nothing's happening in a vacuum. So right. As you mentioned, you can't do anything, to help with slowing down the velocity uh, upstream of you. Mm -hmm. But then the other thing too, is you can't tell mother nature to like, Hey, let's chill out, like chill out. Let's chill out for three years while I plant my trees. Let's have three really (laughs) mellow winters. Just enough. Just enough to let the trees grow. (laughs) Exactly. Which, yeah. Yeah. Worst case, worst case scenario, you throw trees in and for three to five years, you're having to go in every year and like redo all the work you've done. So, well, so in that one, I guess I appreciate uh, appreciate that it's it's something on your guys's you know it's on your list, and I guess that gets that comes to the whole the whole point of of a carbon farm plan, and you you put it all in there, and you you think you know everything you could think of, and maybe the time to actually do it it, t- it takes a while, maybe it takes the right grant. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess in this case, it would a, be- a lot of it comes down to partnerships. Like, yeah. where's the technical assistance coming from? Where's the funding coming from? And then like, can the the operation like give its time yeah exactly yeah Yeah, right and can we give time or can we get our get paid for our time Mm -hmm. through through a grant yeah last one i want to touch on is silvopasture Mm -hmm. because actually when i had visited here a couple years ago i think that was right when you guys had put in Mm -hmm. uh, a good portion Mm -hmm. of it uh give me tell me a little bit more about that project and and Mm -hmm. how it's looking now yeah, that was an interesting project. I definitely learned a lot about what not to do in that project. Mm-hmm. Um, some successes, a lot of failures. Silvopasture is really challenging when you're operating in an, in a Mediterranean environment mm-hmm. where you have an existing livestock program that is generating the income you need mm-hmm. <laughs> to keep the property going. So the primary land use is grazing, right? And when you put in something that you need to then protect from livestock. You're paying for additional fencing. 
Um, livestock ultimately still get around that. Um, we also had what I call like the seven plagues in one field where literally drought, flood, pests, like it was like biblical what mm-hmm. happened in that field. <laughs> like, Sweet. Okay. Nature did not want a silver pasture right here. Yeah. Um, there are other places where it's doing better. Um, certain certain pastures. Um, one pasture we actually just put olives. It wasn't as diversified as the other plantings, and that that one is 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 doing much better um ultimately the goal is once the olives are to the point that they can withstand grazing we'll integrate sheep underneath them Mm -hmm. to to um increase carbon sequestration decrease weeds they definitely have to be a lot taller though because sheep like to eat the leaves so and there will probably always be some type of trunk protection needed Mm -hmm. because that we actually found that they will eat the, the bark too. But but yeah, I mean, we planted them all with like basically no tillage. Like we came in with literally, it was like this little plow that you would like put the plugs in right after. So it mm-hmm. just broke just the amount of ground that you needed to put the plugs in, which is great from like a soil disturbance perspective. Also meant that every pasture was just doing what it always did, which was mm-hmm. grow a lot of grass. <laughs> and yeah. you had these like tiny trees and like grass three times as tall as the trees. So then, then you have, then you need to, you know, do Come some maintenance and, but another sort of success story was it, it will be a silvo pasture eventually. It's not like sort of designed in the classic sense of it being like interspersed throughout the pasture equally. It's more along the edges, but there's, will be livestock on both sides. Um, so you could call it a windbreak as well. There's like different ways to, to, to look at it. But yeah, I mean, we want not only the carbon sequestration, but like the shade. There's mm-hmm. a lot of pastures that just didn't have tree cover mm-hmm. and it can be 120. Yep. I mean, you know, those days here where it's just so hot and the livestock then can't really be in fields where there's no shade. So mm-hmm. then you have to think about that. And so we're really trying to increase that shade as well, just for, for livestock comfort. Cool. And, and we'll, this will be a good segue into the, into the next point I want to talk about as far as other ranch operations. But I think... Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the idea there too is to kind of have that be a, a you pick kind of setup. I don't know if that's still a yeah. reality or not, but yeah, that particular vision is not. But there, we do have other agrotourism mm-hmm. that happens here. We host corporate retreats. We have an Airbnb, which is right behind us. We do chef dinners, things to like bring people out mm-hmm. and sort of witness what's happening here. There's like a bit of an educational bend, I guess, mm-hmm. to it. So. People are still coming out. You pick, not so much. But Got it. Yeah. yeah, well, so perfect. And you, you just started to kind of get into a little bit. But, and again, this is a this is a non-agricultural person speaking, but being very much, a, you know, interested in in how it, it interacts within, within my field of work of, of just general land conservation. Uh, it's coming to this, what our whole conversation has been so far is these, sort of uh, above and beyond practices getting implemented on, on a ranch, on a smaller ranch, uh, where the, where arguably you can't solely rely on just the agricultural production of it. And so um, you start looking at diversification of, of your ranch's offerings. Mm-hmm. So so you just started to uh, get into a little bit, and, and we don't need to like necessarily talk economics of it, but mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I'm just curious, uh, when did you start sort of 
you know, encouraging people to come on? Mm-hmm. How did you identify the, the offerings mm-hmm. and, and, and how's that going as far as, oh, just how it affects you guys, but also just on the, yeah, on the operation mm-hmm. of, of the ranch? Yeah, I'd say that our diversity is probably one of the strongest points that we have in terms of our economic elasticity I'd Mm, say like mm -hmm. because everything changes year over year so like when you spread your risk over more enterprises generally speaking you're sort of protecting yourself against that volatility yeah so we do have that agritourism enterprise I'd say the most successful part of that is the Airbnb Mm. Airbnb I think just as a platform sort of lends itself to a certain you know, amount of visibility, so you don't really have to invest in any marketing. Sure. We really don't do any marketing, so that's another thing we probably should be doing, but don't really do. Oh, but there's a point of uh, right if you just if it if you uh, if you build it, they will come dynamic, yeah. right? Yeah, no, and the, and, and we we're get, not far from from the you know from yeah. Sacramento uh, from a number of uh, urban areas. People, yeah, people looking just for a little bit of respite. Yeah. I would assume. Yeah. Yeah. So that's been really successful. And then every fall we do like this fall farm day, which is at coincides with when it's the weekend before Thanksgiving. Hmm. People come to get their turkey because we raise turkeys. So um, we like we grow a bunch of other stuff like we harvest our olive oil before then. So there's just different things people can come and purchase. If the weather permits, sometimes we do like a farm tour on that mm-hmm. day. We invite like our our friends who make beer and wine and you can drink and eat a taco and just chill and yeah so um that's been pretty successful i think people really like to come and just be on a farm so yeah the agritourism is one enterprise and then just the different livestock enterprises like historically like if you if typically this property would have just been a cow-calf operation like most people around here do but there's no way we could just do that and i'd say just do that without a lot like thousands more acres right. that you're grazing as yeah. well in addition to yeah. yeah at our scale exactly so so given this parameters of our scale we had to diversify mm-hmm. um not just from a des- it wasn't just from a desire to diversify like from an economic perspective we had to mm-hmm. um and i'd say that there's a balance there right like we used to do three different types of poultry we would do chicken turkey and duck duck was a nightmare so like no more duck right (laughs) but chicken and chicken was the first thing we started with eventually to find out that really the like demand was for turkey um Mm. so we do more turkey now than we do chicken um we still do some chicken but so it's sort of like maintaining that level of like flexibility and being nimble enough to kind of do to do what the market demands but not be so nimble that you're just following the whim of you know whatever new fancy glittery object comes your way yeah yeah well very yeah well great well so uh then i i appreciate i've really appreciated all of that insight and i think this has been a great conversation and i think just to end it i've i've been ending these podcasts with uh with question lightning rounds Mm -hmm. um just to get just to leave it off on a on a light note Mm -hmm. and so I'm going to hit you with a few, and these can be uh, uh, one word to one sentence responses. Okay. The last one, might, could, you could maybe expand on a little bit. Uh, so, and since we are on a ranch, this can be, these are, of course, these are nature-related questions. Mm-hmm. It can be non-native or native. Okay. Okay. Uh, what's your favorite bird and why? Probably geese. 
any specific kind of geese or just generally geese? The geese that are here. <laughs> uh, right now? Like well, in they, the fields? They, they come through in the fall. Yeah. And that's, it's like a signal that the seasons are changing and that's why I like it. Cool. You hear them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And their V shape that they fly in is really Sure. Well, I'm, I'm, I'll just add to that. I mean, we are uphill of one of the the most productive strategic uh, overwintering grounds mm-hmm. for for water for migratory mm-hmm. waterfowl, which is the the entirety of the Central Valley. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and it is awesome to, to get you get some of them kind of mm-hmm. coming over the hills here. Uh, what's your favorite reptile slash amphibian? Whoa. And why? Which may be a hard one. That is sort of a hard one. Um, in the spring, and I don't know specifically what they are, but there's a certain toad that mm. is in abundance in the spring. Uh, probably a California toad. Probably, would yeah. Would be, uh, be my assumption. This is their territory. Yeah, yeah and the, it's also a signal that the seasons are changing because the night times when they get warmer, mm-hmm. it's like frog it's singings just, everywhere. A cacophony. Yeah. Cool. Uh, what's your favorite mammal? And why? Ooh, domesticated, or it can be domestic, mm. or you can give me you can give me a domesticated and a native. Mm. I think actually cattle, because mm-hmm. of the like journey I went on from thinking that they were like evil to to understand to not them evil, <laughs> yeah, yeah, to not to to uh, yeah, use case specific. <laughs> yeah, yeah, cool. Right again, this is all this is all about our personal journeys here. <laughs> uh, okay, what is your favorite? underappreciated or unknown preserved place that you can go to so open space park Mm. preserve something that's maybe a little off the beaten track that most people don't know about and it could be as cool it could be as epic or not you know for just a personal reason Mm. that's a good question like and it could even be just your your ranch yeah, I think that's what it is because I don't, <laughs> I don't go. I mean, I will say we did grow up with the privilege of being able to just run wild on the the Mexican land grant mm. um, property. That was part of like the agreement between my grandfather and the former owner. So that was like our our own park, ten thousand acres, which is. That's a pretty substantially sized regional park. Yeah, uh, a I, private I mean, regional park. Pri- sorry, it's private, but I I remember getting lost on horses with my sister, for example, like literally her crying and being like, "Where are we? Yeah, <laughs> like, well, take long, us home." Yeah, well, there, yeah, yeah. well, yeah, that's awesome, and I mean, yeah, that's a that's a privilege, but what a what a benefit, you know, what an awesome experience, and I mean, yeah, and, but that speaks also to why you're here doing what you're doing and connected to the land. Uh, if you weren't ranching, what would you be doing right now? Ranching mm-hmm. slash managing. Mm-hmm. Probably what I am doing, um, in addition to ranching, which is this sort of, um, working with the nonprofits mm-hmm. to expand this work via funding and technical assistance. Yeah. Cool. Uh, and the last one in what or where do you find hope? Hmm. Probably in talking with farmers and ranchers about why they do what they do and why they're interested in change awesome well that's all i got for you so uh thank you very much molly of pt ranch for uh this is episode four and it's a wrap so thank you so much thanks all right hey guys it's marshall you may or may not have noticed a different intro song this time around 
Shout out to my pops for taking it upon himself to write a custom song for his son's budding podcast. It really means a lot. And thanks so much to you, the listener, for sticking around to the end. I appreciate that you're interested in something that interests me and that I'm passionate about. If you enjoy what you're hearing and want it to continue, please take a moment to rate the podcast or share with a friend. And I'll see you in the next episode.